First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined, as usual, by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to The Politics Guys. Hey, it is great to be back, Trey. It is always fun to be doing the show with you, and it's fun uh, that we're here in that kind of holiday season post-Thanksgiving before uh, uh, Christmas and a variety of other holidays. And so, I don't know, this is one of my favorite times of the year. I don't know. What about for you, Ken? Well, I got to write my final exams and then I got to grade them. So my five favorite times will start a little bit later, I think. (laughs) See, we get done sooner. And so I have already given in to the amazingness of uh, of the break. You know, my my final exams are done. They're graded. They're in. And, and, you know, for once in a number of years, I'm actually feeling really good in January. So I love it. Uh, And so, you know, I guess to this particular episode, you know, we're going to start here with a couple of kind of sad things in a way, or at least, uh, I don't know, uh, oftentimes in life, Ken, I've noticed every biography ends the same way the the person dies, right? (laughs) And so (laughs) we're, you know, we're kind of talking, we're going to be talking today about uh, Henry Kissinger and uh, Sandra Day O'Connor to start off the show. And so... You know, it's a good time to think I'm alive, right? <laughs> you know, the end of my biography hasn't occurred yet. Uh, and, and so we're going to start with Kissinger and then we'll, we'll be moving to O'Connor. Uh, so on Wednesday, of course, Henry Kissinger died. Uh, according to both his official website and his consulting firm, he wasn't young, 100 years old uh, at the time of his death. Kissinger, of course, was a towering influence on American foreign policy. And of course, was not much liked by either the left or the right. Yet, his positions in many ways define contemporary diplomacy. In 1973, he would be the only person to ever be both national security advisor and head of the State Department at the same time. And that, of course, was during the Nixon era. He would hold that dual role from Nixon and into the Ford era uh, to eventually be ended by Ford. He would also controversially be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for a plan to end the Vietnam War, although that agreement announced in January 1973 would not end the war or stop fighting as it would continue for two more years until Saigon fell. 
Contemporary listeners might not know it was Nixon who opened relationship with China. And Nixon was the first president to ever visit mainland China while in office. And this is largely the result of Kissinger. The visit broke decades of hostilities between the communist government there and the United States, and it launched the contemporary relationship, at least as most historians and political scientists see it, until the Trump era. As the Wilson Center rightfully noted, it, quote, substantially altered the international balance of power and arguably concluded the Cold War in East Asia, end quote. Again, Kissinger's goal was to create relationships between China, the United States, and the Soviet Union. And that was all part of his fundamental important to understand him, realism. As he put it, the most moral good of all was the pursuit of stability and peace. What more realist could you be? Realism in this view is that in international relations, there's no particular moral standard per se. Instead, the system is defined by power, specifically power among states. And the goal is to create peace by recognizing it only comes from major powers accurately wielding their power for that purpose. As the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal rightfully put it this week, He was the creator of things such as the contemporary shuttle diplomacy, that is, of negotiating between parties that refuse to talk to each other. Most famously, he used shuttle diplomacy between Israel and Arab states, an item that obviously is still important today. Kissinger was more than willing to put realism to work, whether it be dealing with dictators in Latin America or in giving aid to Kurd separatists before again removing that aid when it no longer suited the power pursuits of the United States or the Shah of Iran. As he famously said in declassified documents about Pinochet, whether, quote, whether one agrees with the policies of one regime or another, we need to remember, however unpleasant they act, the Pinochet government is better than the Allende was, end quote. Like Nixon, he was secretive. Sometimes this was helpful, but oftentimes put a question mark on his actions and his legacy. After his time with the Ford administration, he would continue to write books and columns, but he would also lead a consulting firm that had a select and, true to form, secret list of corporate governments and clients that he continued to do well into his 90s. And so as a result, Ken, I don't think it's a big surprise that you all over uh, uh, the internet, uh, you saw lots of both left and right saying... Thank heavens Kissinger is dead. I'm not sure anybody has been quite that happy about somebody's death, although I'm always a little hesitant to be happy about anybody's death. Um, But again, I think it's because of his realism uh, and his uh, his kind of potentially unsavory use of that realism with governments that were not always positive. Uh, But what, what were your takes on Kissinger? Again? Yeah, I, I agree completely with what you just said. I mean, I think the you know particular uh, um, pr- particularly low episodes in his career, I suppose, uh, it was I, it's widely thought to have been his idea. Although you never know what what's him and what's Nixon, but widely thought to have been his idea to expand the Vietnam War into Cambodia and Laos, which escalated the war and dramatically lengthened the war. You know, caused hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people uh, to to end up dying. And really, um, you know, didn't lead to any result 
you know, any really different than probably what could have uh, happened. Um, if, if the war, if they would have just tried to end the war in 69 when Nixon came in, it, it couldn't really have been very different than, you know, all, all Kissinger's expansions into Cam- Cambodia and Cambodia and Laos and extending it. So I think that's, a, you know, one episode that people really despise him for. And then also, and you mentioned Chile and Argentina, that he... He did military coups to uh, overthrow popular, popularly elected uh, left-wing governments and put in very brutal uh, right-wing military dictatorships in, in both of those countries, the, the Pinochet regime you mentioned. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think, I think those are, you know, at least on the left, those are the things that people remember Kissinger for, and they, they don't like him. I'm actually a little less familiar with what the, what the rights beef against him is. Generally speaking, his willingness to have interactions with China and the Soviet Union primarily uh, as, as a view of, of not being the proper version of realism. Oh, the, like the because he did do the opening to China and mm-hmm. the de- detente mm-hmm. with the Soviet Union. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which was the time was uh, I mean, again, we don't think about it now, but at the time was a, a, a relatively criticized move. Uh, it's more. Re- this is one where I think, you know, kind of the one uh, the expansion of the Vietnam War. It, it, it took time for that to be the negative view on him that it was. I think the 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 China opening specifically is one that was not particular popular at the time, especially on the right. And only more recently uh, uh, became a little, you know, became uh, viewed more positively. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know what alternative there was there. I, I, I guess I don't see these things from the right, but you've got a country with a billion people there. It's a real country. And to just kind of keep pretending it doesn't exist, uh, it, it didn't seem like that was a very sustainable situation that the United States could have maintained forever. Well, no, I mean, again, of course, you're talking to a guy who is an international liberal. So, I mean, it's going to be <laughs> yeah. tough for me to <laughs> to take the uh, uh, well, you know, the uh, the isolationist view, but I mean, of course, that that isolationist view, which has regained in popularity in the in the Trump era and moved forward, yeah, uh, that was a really popular view for a long time, and and I think both among uh, some very many conservative Democrats and uh, uh, emergent conservatives among Republicans at that time, when you kind of have that some of the, that flip between parties. Uh, and I think just historically speaking, we, we forget how powerful isolationism was in the United States foreign policy for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could certainly see that. You, you, I think there's a little of a, a middle ground between um, you could still be an isolationist and still recognize that there is a country called China. Uh, you know, and, and before <laughs> before his opening to China, we, we you know, again, we I mean, right. of course, the Chinese is particularly uh, unique because what is China and, you know, who who is the accurate uh, p- position right. of China? And then, of course, that's during the era of Mao. Uh, yeah. And Mao's little red book. So again, I mean, you, you have a lot of anti-communist uh, problem. It, is Mao really the leader of China, or is it in in uh, Taiwan? Taiwan. Um, so I mean, again, I'm not taking a position, but you know, just historically speaking, those were pretty big issues at the time. Yeah, but but China had a hundred times as many people as Taiwan did. Like you, you just can't close your eyes to that forever. I don't think so. I, I do think the opening to China was somewhat inevitable, but I'll I'll give him credit for being involved in it. And I I, I don't agree with the right's uh, criticism of it. And we got those great panda bears in the Washington D.C. Zoo out of it. Oh, well, they're they, gone they right those, now. They took I, them that, back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, that just happened this past week. My wife is actually a huge. We are supporters uh, of uh, uh, zoological and preservation attempts. Uh, and so here we're actually supporters of the uh, Oklahoma Zoo as a result. 
and so she knew about that coming on uh, further on, which is the uh, China has slowly but surely pulled uh, pandas from the United States. Uh, Atlanta is next. Uh, because weirdly enough, China does not abide by, I mean, maybe that's not weird, doesn't abide by the normal protocols over uh, animal preservation uh, and uh, ecology. Instead, they claim to own all the pandas, which is a little bit unique for a communist country, I guess, but okay. So they say they loaned them for long enough, it's like, we got to give them back now? We got to give them back. It's all over yeah. now, right? Because yeah. if, 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 if you're a giant panda, you, you belong to the, uh, the, the communist powers in China. <laughs> so I guess we need the next Henry Kissinger to do some shuttle diplomacy and get over there and get the, get the pandas back. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, so we, we, we've been talking about that. Well, I mean, of course, this week as well, Ken, we also had the passing of Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, as a matter of fact, she died today, this morning on Friday. Uh, she was the first woman ever to serve on the Supreme Court. She died today in Phoenix, Arizona at the age of 93. And this is another one where you might not think of the history. I know when I, I teach students, they don't always think about these timelines. She was on the bench for 24 years, beginning in 1981. So just two years before I was born, uh, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her role in expanding uh, uh, women's access to the court. Now, it's worth mentioning is that despite graduating high school at 16 and attending Stanford, she faced steep discrimination during her life. During an NPR interview in 2013, she spoke of how law firms uh, turned her away for jobs for no other reason than her sex. In her own words, quote, I called at least 40 firms asking for an interview and not one of them would give me an interview. I was a woman, they said. We don't hire women, she told them. Quote, that was a shock to me. It was a total shock. It shouldn't have been. I should have known better. I should have followed what was going on, but I had it, end quote. Instead, O'Connor was offered only one job that would end up being a pretty good joke when she received the uh, Medal of Honor under uh, Barack Obama, that of legal secretary. Instead, oh. yeah, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you, knew, if you remember that little bit, but uh, Obama, as he was awarding, I said, I don't know how she would have done as a legal secretary, but I know what she did as a Supreme, you know, I know she did really yeah. well as a Supreme Court justice. Right. Uh, I, I loved that. I mean, yeah, take it, leave. That was a great uh, turn of phrase. Uh, instead, as Politico and others have outlined in their obituary, she turned to the public sector. Uh, that work in the public sector eventually got her a place where Ronald Reagan would her nominate her for the Supreme Court, replacing Justice Potter Stewart. In interviews on the subject, she talked about the responsibility she felt to make sure that other women could come and do the job as well after her. She needed to do better than average, in her words. She needed to excel. Her legal opinions in some ways, Ken, I think might be often misunderstood. She was primarily a conservative who, for a variety of reasons, had a more liberal view of rights. That was most pronounced when it came to her vote in 1992 to uphold Roe v. Wade and again in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. As a matter of fact, as a personal anecdote, she came to my university, Miami University, when I was a graduate student there, uh, which I remember very clearly because a friend of mine who will remain nameless uh, was able to actually ask her a two part question that uh, she was not particularly fond of. <laughs> uh, she didn't like either part of it. The first part of the question had to do with her being a swing voter. And if you've read any of her things, she hates that term and hates being labeled that. Uh, she did not like that terminology at all. 
Uh, and that was something she was quick to point out to my friend. Uh, she also, in the second part of the question, uh, took, as we have, this is, I have noted on the show before, a particularly unique view, in my opinion, of the Tenth Amendment uh, that she thought we all should have known already. <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may, it was a lot of fun to get to uh, uh, see that. Uh, as she did outline there and in her other interviews, she didn't herself think of herself as a swing voter, as a matter of fact, in the way she put it at Miami. Uh, but she was someone who stood on legal principle that did not clearly align with a particular political outcome. Uh, and so as a result, as you might uh, notice, she probably never had the same kind of following as the second woman to be on the Supreme Court, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, who followed O'Connor to the court. As a matter of fact, Eugene Volk, a legal scholar who clerked for Sandra Day in the 90s, said, Quote, she was one of a set of justices who was pragmatic. Her view was you want the legal system to work effectively and you want to interpret statutes and constitutional provisions with an eye towards that. The result in some situations was that she wasn't very predictable, end quote. So, Ken, what are your thoughts on Sandra Day O'Connor? Yeah, I agree with parts of uh, the, the, uh, Eugene Volokh's analysis and, and other things he said, not all. Um, I, I don't think she was uh, very interested in legal principle. I would not agree with him at all that she she stood on. If he said she stood on legal principles that didn't align with one ideology or the other, um, I do agree she didn't align with one ideology or the other. But I, I think her her, juris, her jurisprudence, it's, it's really hard to, to identify any kind of um, jurisprudence, any kind of philosophy of legal interpretation, which is what I would call legal principles, that she applied in a really consistent way. And, and I always understood her jurisprudence to be more that, that the centrism itself or, or the swing voterism that you talked about, which word she didn't like, that that's driving the whole thing, right? That every, well, you, every, you actually, yeah, the it, way you sum that up, you, you, yeah. you almost put it the way that my friend asked the question. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so heads up, she would not have she would not she have been happy with you. With uh, I'm just going to point it out since she can't do it for herself anymore. Can but continue. continue. Yeah. But, but, but I think when she would look at disputes and, you know, these disputes are being litigated according to laws. But I think she would typically, you know, rather than trying to get to, you know, well, what what methods of interpretation do I bring to this law to figure out, you know, which side should win this dispute under the law, which is what most justices would do. Um, I think she almost didn't look at the law and she just looked at the dispute and thought about, well, what's what's a compromise solution that can work for everyone? And so, you know, I, I really think it's that 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 is pragmatism. But I would really call that a, a lack of legal principle that I think kind of drove the way her jurisprudence worked. And she also, you know, almost more than any other modern justice. It's, it's almost impossible to find a decision of hers where it's in a high enough profile case where the public cares, where she doesn't do exactly what public opinion supports. You know, I think she's always looking for that. Like, what's what's the what's the solution to this problem that's kind of right in the main heartland of where public opinion is? And how do I get to that? And and I think those those kind of things are, are not really what I would call legal principles. Like usually with legal principles, you're talking about an interpretive theory where you look at the law and bring some tools to bear on how you figure out what the law means, and then you apply it to the facts of the dispute. And usually that's going to mean one side wins and one side loses. But I think she was really um, very much characterized by like finding ways to split the difference. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think her one of her finding characteristics was the idea that moderate conservatism 
is connected to almost kind of a populist view. I don't I mean, they, I have to think yeah. about them. Like, yeah. for instance, when you mentioned uh, Planned, Parent, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the 1992 case mm -hmm. where the court was asked to overrule Roe versus Wade. And, and you look at what she did there and she um, kind of halfway overruled Roe versus Wade. She she allowed um, quite a lot of abortion restrictions that wouldn't previously have been allowed. And she overruled a lot of a lot of Supreme Court cases that had been decided after Roe versus Wade, there's various kinds of restrictions like like 24-hour waiting periods or spousal notification requirements or parental notification requirements. That's or, moving the it, most famous, of course. Yeah. 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 There's all these restrictions that in the in the in twenty in the twenty years between seventy-three and ninety-two, anytime a state enacted a restriction like that and, and, and it got challenged in court, the Supreme Court always says, well, these all these restrictions are unconstitutional. And then um, uh, in Casey, uh, Planned Parent, uh, 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 Pennsylvania reenacts about six or seven different restrictions all of which had been previously held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And she overrules all those cases and she upholds substantially all the restrictions. I think the only one that she strikes down is the spousal uh, notification provision. And she, but she upholds all the other provisions. And, and so she's introducing a regime where um, abortion could be greatly restricted, whereas under Roe, it couldn't really be restricted very much at all. But yet she's also, you know, sort of preserving this kind of central core of, of Roe where, um, you know, there's, there's, there can't be any kind of total bans on abortion. And as, as many obstacles as states are now going to be allowed to throw in the way, if, if a woman wants to jump through all those hoops and still get an abortion, she's got to have the right to do that and right up to the line of viability. And I think, you know, there's absolutely no way that anybody could look at the text of the U.S. Constitution, doesn't matter whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, whatever, like these fine gradations that she's making in, in the Casey decision, there's just no way to tie those back to the Constitution, no matter what side of the issue you're on. But I think she she just you know looked at this problem and is like, this is a political compromise that'll work for everybody. And this is actually what the public supports. And I'm just going to say this is what the Constitution means. you know. And I think yeah. it's, a, it's a very <laughs> typical kind of uh, uh, jurisprudence for her to do something like that. Well, you know, it's funny because you guys would have fallen on completely opposite sides of the spectrum, but you would have, have agreed deeply on uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. <laughs> yeah. I'll also say one more thing. You mentioned her unique view of the Tenth Amendment. I actually think that's worth picking up on because... Please that was do, the, because I, I, actually that's one where I disagree with her deeply. <laughs> yeah, well, I do too. But I think it's actually one of the most unique parts of her jurisprudence because I think most, most of the kind of jurisprudence that I was just talking about, she was pretty big on being able to set disputes by compromising them in issues that the public kind of was paying Not attention to and cared about. Yeah, 10th Amendment, first of all, it's an issue that the general public just can't understand or knows nothing about. And and second of all, there wasn't that much of a dispute, but she she just kind of created out of whole cloth some rules that are, are now called the anti-commandeering rules. And listeners to our bonus show, if they stick with us all the way to the 10th Amendment, we'll get to these in more detail. But uh, yep. um, the, the concept of the anti-commandeering rules, which were just kind of made up out of whole cloth by Justice O'Connor, uh, is that um, it, it's the idea that even if Congress has power um, to regulate some activity, say say it's some business activity that Congress could regulate under the Commerce Clause, and, and even if under the Supremacy Clause, um, that means that federal law could preempt contrary state law, and so the state law would have to give way to the federal law, even, even when both of those conditions obtain, um, she came up with all these rules about 
but but Congress can't require state legislatures to enact state laws, and Congress can't require uh, state executive officials like state police or state sheriffs to um, enforce federal laws. And and if if Congress wants to, um, you know, if Congress wants to have a law, Congress has to provide for federal enforcement of that law or federal implementation of that law, and just can't drag the state governments into it. And there was there really was just nothing like that until she made it up uh, in a case called New York versus United States. And then she extended it probably more famously in, in a case called Prince versus United States in oh, 1997. That, yeah, that's the one yeah. I was thinking. Of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the Brady Act. So 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 Congress passes a, a, a gun control statute after after Reagan was assassinated. And the gun control statute does require well, well, heads up just to me. He wasn't a he, uh, Reagan's oh, no, not assassinated. He's he just survived. shot. But he not shot. Assassinated. Yeah, he survived. And Brady actually survived. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I, mean, I don't know. Is that or is, that's not an assassination if he survived? No, assassination he, he has to be dead. Reagan gets shot. His set press secretary, James Brady, gets shot and paralyzed for life. And Congress passes the, the Brady Act. And the Brady Act, among other things, required um, background checks for gun buyers uh, for, for certain kinds of guns. But this was passed in the 90s just a little bit before the internet was at the stage of technology that it's at now. And so you're you're still in a situation where most gun dealers in the country wouldn't have had the technological capability to do a background check. It was it was foreseeable that they soon would because it was foreseeable that there'd be these computer networks and stores would have computers and they'd be able to get on the networks and do the background checks. But we weren't quite at that state of technology yet. And so when Congress passed the Brady Act, they passed interim provisions, which only lasted for five years. And the, the concept was after the five years, we'll just make the gun dealers do the background checks. But for the five Five years when it was thought that gun dealers wouldn't have the technology to do that, the law says um, if a gun dealer can't run a background check, the gun dealer's got to call the county sheriff's office and ask them to do a background check, and the and the county sheriff's office has to do the background check, and and that feature of it, the the idea that federal law was telling. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a problem what it was telling the gun dealers, but the problem was it was telling the county sheriffs that they have to do the background check. And and uh, O'Connor made up this kind of jurisprudence where she says, well, even though Congress can require gun dealers to do background checks and can require gun buyers to subject themselves to background checks if they want to buy a gun, uh, Congress can't require county sheriffs to do the background checks because they're state and local government officials and there's this anti-commandeering rule and state and local government officials can't be commandeered into having to help enforce federal law. So. Congress, if they want this done, they should tell the gun dealers to call the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms or some other federal agency to do the background check, but they can't make them call the county sheriffs. And again, this is just I don't know why this was so important to her. I think this was not something that, to my knowledge, you know, uh, was something that the public was very concerned about or engaged in or even understood the nuances of. But it was uh, it was a part of her vision of how federalism should work that she just kind of made up, said that the Tenth Amendment stands for that. And we've definitely got it uh, to this day. That's still part of our law, and it hasn't it hasn't been rescinded very much uh, since even since she's been off the court. I'm saying it hasn't even really come up, but well, well it does it does still come up from time to time. But um, it's it's oh, still uh, yeah. It is I mean, still, it hasn't been in any way kind of overruled. Oh, yeah, overruled, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, let me, exactly. yeah let me, I, I need to be more explicit there. Yeah, but you know that's why they don't have um, sports betting in most states. It's actually because of that same principle. Hmm. 
Now yeah. that one, I'm gonna be honest. That one, I doubt was a new one. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, because there was a federal law that um, was trying to regulate the way state legislatures dealt with sports betting, and there was a fairly recent case at the Supreme Court about that under these commandeering principles. Again, because it's a federal law trying to um, regulate state law. Want well, to take a look at that? Want to take a look at that? Yeah. Well, the the other big item, I mean, obviously Friday is was just a huge day this week. Things is is that, and we predicted this, Ken. Right, the last time we were on the show, we we were trying to make a prediction of when this was going to happen, how long it was going to take. You thought it was going to be a little bit sooner, thought yeah. it was going to be a little bit later. We kind of split the difference on that front, I think. Yep. <laughs> and uh, but I, you know, I'm going to give us a win on this front because right, George Santos, rep- well, former representative George Santos, was expelled from Congress today. He becomes the sixth person ever and the third since the Civil War in which individuals who supported that insurrection activity were thrown out. Uh, now, what makes this particularly uh, uh, fascinating is, I mean, it took a ton of Republican support. The vote ends up being uh, 311 to 114. And Santos decides to leave the office the same way he came in, full of bluster. Half of GOP lawmakers voted for expelling Santos and a little under half voted uh, against it because his criminal case was not yet finished, as the way that Speaker Johnson put it was, that's going to set a bad precedent. As a matter of fact, before we recorded this episode, uh, Mike, one of our other uh, show hosts, emailed us to say, hey, you know what? I wouldn't have expelled him either. I know that, you know, that might be a different view. And Mike isn't alone. Many on the left, as uh, just a few hours ago, The Atlantic, for example, ran a big story, not exactly what you'd call a bastion of conservatism or Republican sympathy. The Atlantic argued, you know what? Santos should not have been outed. Now, for those of you who are supporters and Ken mentioned, you, know, you mentioned this a second ago, right? You know, you and I, we've been moving through the U.S. Constitution in our bonus shows. Uh, and so we covered a little bit about this, uh, yep. I, I mean, many weeks ago now. Uh, but, you know, if you aren't, you know, you said that earlier, and I'm just going to point this out again. You shouldn't. You should be right. I mean, you you, <laughs> you should head to the show notes right now. Uh, and we'll wait for you uh, <laughs> and and become a supporter or just head to patreon.com slash politics guys while we continue to talk uh, and become a supporter. And you can hear our, uh, us talk about this when we talk about Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, because Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution uh, is, is where all this is handled. So just a little bit of background here. And, and again, we've already covered this on, for those of you been on the bonus show. Uh, Article 1, Section 5, uh, Clause 2 said some pretty important things. Uh, but th- this is the big one right here. Quote, each house may determine the rules of its proceedings. That's a really big deal. <clears throat> but we'll save that for the bonus show. Uh, <laughs> punish members <laughs> for disorderly behavior. And with the concurrence of two thirds, expel a member, end quote. So those rules right. of uh, proceeding are important. But he, he, that last bit that's going on right here, obviously, today, the Constitution uh, gives each chamber of Congress the power to punish its own members. Really, the only requirement outlined there in Article 1, Section 5 is that that expulsion vote requires a two thirds vote of the House, which right now that means you got to have 290 out of 435. A two-thirds vote is higher than a simple majority for most legislations because, well, during the 1787 Constitutional Convention, Governor Morris argued that really all you should have is that majority vote. But James Madison pushes back and argues, quote, it was too important to be exercised by a bare majority of a quorum, end quote, and therefore, quote, might be dangerously abused, end quote. 
And that Madisonian stance ends up winning out. And that's where the two-thirds requirement was put into the Constitution. So what gives this idea has to be a formal criminal charge? Well, after the Civil War, Michael Ozzie Myers, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, was outed in 1980 after a conviction of bribery and corruption uh, as a result of an FBI sting. Democrat uh, James Trafkent of Ohio is the most recent. Uh, he got expelled with a 420 to 1 vote in 2002 after being convicted of racketeering, bribery, and obstruction of justice and tax evasion. And, you know, I've thought about this pretty carefully, Ken, and I, I understand what Madison was saying and that you don't want Congress to make the decisions for voters effectively. And, and I get that, you know, Ken, uh, that Mike and others like the Atlantic are worried about the kind of precedent that that might set. And so I, I get what, for example, even uh, Speaker Johnson is talking about. <clears throat> but I went back and I reread what the Ethics Committee wrote about him and the evidence that was presented uh, and, and his inability to present anything about that. As a matter of fact, as they found, quote, he fraudulently exploited every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit, end quote. He'd go on to say, quote, blatantly stole from his own campaign, end quote. Maybe worst of all, quote, deceiving donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were in fact payments for his first personal benefit, end quote. As a matter of fact, again, he didn't even try to contest any of this. And as we talked about much earlier in the year, Ken, he's already pled guilty to charges in Mexico, criminal charges of fraud. So again, I deeply understand not wanting this to be a commonplace issue. Again, you don't want Congress replacing voters and saying, hey, this is kind of the, the, the ethical standard you have to have in the sense of like, well, how much lying or whatever. But I really just don't think Santos is the hill to die on. I think Republicans <laughs> look incredibly good for ousting him. And I think this is really key. I mean, they did this at a time when it deeply hurts them in terms of votes, right? And so I know sometimes listeners have, have said, well, you know, Trey, you know, you're not always backing Republicans. And this is one where I'm going to say, look, I've got a lot of praise. Republicans stood up in large part. And, and, and threw this guy out at a time when it would have been easy to say, look, he's not going to run again. You know? yeah. <laughs> Let's just wait. But instead, you know, th 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 we get a two thirds vote and, and, they, and they throw him out at a really difficult time for them. And I, not only do I see that as a positive in terms of I think it's the right thing to do. And I've thought about it, I've thought about it again, again in, in, after Mike was talking about what what he thought was really important here. And I, and I really get that. But I think this is maybe. I'm hopeful. Maybe, maybe I'm too hopeful, Ken, and you'll, and you'll pull yeah. me back to realism here. I think this might be just a small, it's a stone, but it's a stone away from Trumpianism and the idea that the party is going to say, look, there are in fact lines and we don't have to wait until the absolute last minute, <laughs> right? Yeah. To say, because again, the constitution doesn't say you have to wait for a conviction, although we've got one. Uh, the Constitution it just says that you need to have a really good reason. We do. Uh, and, and, and so I think I applaud it. And I think I think voters are going to applaud it, too, when it when it comes time, especially in terms of New York. So, uh, Ken, what do you think about the, the Santos ex uh, uh, being expelled? 
Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with what you said. I'll I'd maybe put, emphasize a few different aspects of it, but I don't think we have any real di disagreement. Um, I, 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 as much as it's true that um, we want to tread lightly when uh, voters have elected somebody before you know the, the Congress decides not to let that person sit, um, I think in this case, it's fairly obvious that the Long Island voters who elected Santos re regret that vote. They don't they don't want Santos anymore. You know, so I, I don't think I don't think in his own district there's any uh, disappointment or upset or outrage uh, that he's been removed because they didn't know all this stuff about him when they voted for him, and they they probably wouldn't have voted for him if they knew all that stuff about them so, and they feel duped. So, so that, that problem, this sort of problem from democracy, I think doesn't exist in this case. And, and I think it generally couldn't exist because it's going to take a two thirds vote. And, and, you know, when you were talking about the debate about whether it should be 50% uh, or whether it should be two thirds at the time of the convention, they had not really completely anticipated the kind of uh, hardening of political parties and the partisan two party system that we have. But if you have a two party system, you know, a 50% vote allows partisan impeachment, right? It means as soon as one party yeah. has a majority, they can kick out everyone in the other party. So you definitely don't want that. But a, a two-thirds vote um, actually is more or less impossible uh, without bipartisan buy-in. So there, there's already a lot of due process protection there. Under, under ordinary circumstances, one party or the other party is is not going to have an interest in going along with a, a bogus impeachment. So I think there's, and that's why we haven't, you know, before we have never even seen, uh, I mean, expulsion, not impeachment, but yeah. we've, we've never even seen a congressional expulsion before um, at a stage as early as this. They, they've all been um, either people that have been actually convicted of felonies or people who took up arms against the United States as traitors. Um, either well, in the, the first three, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there were more than three in the in the um, uh, in the in the years eighteen sixty one eighteen sixty two. There were about uh, about fifteen expulsions. Oh, in the Senate. Yeah, yeah I was thinking. So yeah. just in the House, oh, oh, that you oh, have just three the in the yeah. House. Oh, just three in the House. Yeah, right. so you have, That's you have three right. in the House. Yeah. Three in the House. Uh, yeah. Pre uh, the Civil War. You're yeah. right. There's yeah. 15 as a result in the, uh, yeah, in in the, the Senate. Senate. So yeah. you get a total of 18. Yeah, right, right, right. Done. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I didn't, yeah, I wasn't counting just the House. And then you pointed out the other ones since then. So, so, so Santos, you know, being, I think, very clearly guilty and it being very well documented by the House Ethics Committee report, which ran a very fair, very due process, very thorough proceeding. You know, I, I don't see that it matters that he's been convicted or not. I, I think that he got the same amount of due process um, in that House committee that he would have got. Uh, in a, in a court. And, and I think there's no real danger that this is just a purely ginned up partisan impeachment, because if it was, then the, uh, or I keep saying impeachment expulsion, if it was, the Republicans wouldn't go along with it because they don't want to lose the seat. Now, the one, probably especially one Especially right now. I mean, this is, right I mean, now, if, yeah. if there was ever a time when you'd want to want to weigh in on the, let's take time, it'd be at this juncture when you yeah. have such a narrow majority. The one thing where I'm going to be a little more skeptical of the Republicans than, than you are, and uh, you know, you're saying you know they're doing the right thing, and we should really appreciate that. I mean, I, I think they did do the right thing, but I also think it's very much in their partisan interest. And you know, the people that have been banging the drum the most to do this are the other New York Republican House members, and 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 the Republicans had a, a um, almost flukishly good year in the in New York in uh, in the 22 election, and they they actually picked up four seats in New York in the 22 election. And all of these are, you know, swing districts are actually really even Biden districts. They're not easy districts for Republicans to hold. And I think that by sacrificing Santos, they made it much more possible 
for them to save those other districts that they're holding. You know, I think if they if they had hung on to Santos and let him be the public face of uh, New York Republicans, um, you know, that was just going to be hanging around the neck of all those other vulnerable New York Republicans. And so I do think this was in the Republican Party's self-interest in the they, they lose the one seat for the next couple months. These are months where they're not going to get much done anyhow. And uh, and then they, they, I think, have increased the chances that they could hold some seats in New York, at least because they did this. I mean, again, I won't disagree that obviously in, in the terms of New York uh, uh, helps particular individuals. Uh, but no, I, I am willing to, again, to give some credit because, again, you don't always see individuals making those positions. Uh, and you know, I think we had a little bit of this kind of conversation, right? Like, you know, where does the line for doing the right thing and when it might overlap in part or not overlap in part with uh, uh, benefits to yourself? And this is one that kind of it cuts a variety of ways. It doesn't just it doesn't just cut in the positive direction. Um, and therefore, again, I see that as a positive. But but I, I understand your point there. Yeah. yeah. So the Republican House members are, are doing well by doing good. Especially if you're in New yeah. York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe we should leave Congress behind for a little bit here, Ken, and, and move over into the court realm because when- shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, on the case Securities and Exchange Commission, i.e. the SEC, versus Jarsky, uh, which, as the SCOTUS blog put it, quote, was oddly distant from the decision of the lower court uh, and uh, uh, arguments of the parties, end quote. And that's because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals had a pretty uh, sweeping opinion where it accepted three constitutional challenges to the uh, SEC's apparatus. Uh, In that ruling, it was the fifth uh, that seemed to suggest that in, as a matter of fact, its opinion, uh, the SEC could probably not as a delegation exist. But despite the fact that they really only focused on one issue, the oral arguments lasted far longer than what you would normally expect for the Supreme Court over two hours. So what, what's going on here? Well, what's at issue is what's referred to as the administrative state. And the first ruling of the, or I should, the first part of the three-part ruling of the Fifth uh, Court of Appeals, which is really what the Supreme Court took up is that the Seventh Amendment's right to a jury trial does not allow for the imposition of civil penalties when it comes to an SEC uh, administrative proceeding. This is an issue that has come up before, uh, and the case in hand there is Atlas Roofing Company versus Occupational Health and Safety Review Commission, that is OSHA. In that case, the Supreme Court allowed OSHA to impose penalties for workplace hazards in administrative proceedings. How does that work? Well, in the court's word in that case, quote, the Seventh Amendment does not prevent Congress from assigning to an administrative agency the task of adjudicating violations of OSHA. When Congress creates new, quote, public rights, it may assign their adjudication to an administrative agency with which a jury trial would be incompatible without violating the Seventh Amendment's injunction that a jury trial is to be preserved in suits at common law. Uh, Again, we could be pointing to 
things we're going to be doing in the uh, in the bonus show. So again, you know, you should be a a member of the bonus show and head to Patreon.com/slash/politics guys. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, so you know, when you take a look at this uh, and you take a look at the oral arguments, can you know, obviously you have individuals. Uh, like Justice Roberts, who is very skeptical of that delegation of power. Uh, And then you have individuals like Kagan, who was just adamant this has already been decided uh, in Atlas uh, uh, Roofing Company. Now, there have been a lot of arguments about the extent to which the agencies like the SEC should be able to do this. As a matter of fact, uh, in practice, agencies, home field advantage, has been questionable. As a matter of fact, looking just at the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, the Wall Street Journal noted that when you have this agency acting as both the prosecutor and the judge, you end up having the agency pursuing financial penalties at a rate that does not happen at rates at normal law. As a matter of fact, the SEC had a 90% win rate in contested cases brought before it, its administrative judges from 2010 to 2015. While in federal uh, courts, it only had a 69% win rate. During this period, regulated parties filed official complaints regarding an alleged lack of impartiality by those SEC judges in-house, including one, again, as the Wall Street Journal had noted in its investigative reporting, had ruled in favor of the agency 51 times and never ruled against the agency. So, as expected, some of those justices were very unsympathetic, like I mentioned, Clarence Thomas, who staked out a position that this whole idea of that public rights doctrine is vague in Atlas Roofing, uh, and why, why does this get it an out from the Seventh Amendment? Uh, and then again, K- uh, uh, Kagan, who just continued to hammer that Atla- uh, uh, Atlas Roofing had already made the case. As a matter of fact, as she said, quote, Atlas Roofing says numerous times, it could not have been clear. The Seventh Amendment is no bar to the creation of new rights or the enforcement uh, outside the regular courts of law, end quote. Uh, so for me, Ken, I, I am, you know, again, I, I was not all on board with all the pieces of the Fifth Courts of Appeals uh, position on this, but I am very suspicious of the amount of concentration of power that we seemingly slowly have handed to agencies. So you already have a delegation of power from Congress to an executive branch agency. Uh, and then from there, we then pull into that an additional bit of, uh, of power, which is then the ability to eff- effectively be the adjudicator of it as well. So you kind of have the executive, the legislative, and the, uh, uh, the court role all wrapped up in a singular agency. And so I, I get that there's a lot of legality here and there's precedent here, but it really gives me heartburn when you see that much concentration in a system where we're really generally trying to separate that out. So I, I, ha- I have some sympathy, again, although maybe not to the extent that the Fifth Court of Appeals does, but this idea that we can have agencies that are effectively both the executive branch via a, a, a big beast of lawmaking through rulemaking as a result of the delegation from Congress, while simultaneously then having the ability to then enforce their own rules via its own judicial mechanism and appeals process. But I'm curious to see what you say about that. Yeah, so there's all these issues in this case. So you sort of ended on separation of powers. So I'll start there. And then there's also Seventh Amendment and there's also non-delegation doctrine. Right, yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah. So uh, separation of powers. um, So 
most people learn it the way you the way you just explained it that we've got a legislative branch that makes the laws that's the congress that's created by article 1 of the constitution we've got an executive branch that uh, enforces the laws that's the president and his administration that's created by article 2 of, of the constitution and then we've got this judicial branch that um, interprets the laws says what the law is and applies it to uh, concrete disputes and that's the judicial branch and it's created by article 3 of the constitution but even even that story even before before we look at administrative law, it's it's incredibly oversimplified, even even if it's even in its simplest applications. So, for instance, although we say that the it's the legislative branch that makes the laws, um, you know the the actual legislative process has the executive branch embedded all over it. The the president can propose legislation. The vice president of the United States presides over the Senate, and if the House and the Senate actually pass a bill, it has to be presented to the president, and he can sign it into law or veto it. So, you know, right away, you know, the kind of simple version is, well, the, the Congress is the branch that makes the laws, but actually it's in, in reality, it's the Congress in partnership with the executive that makes the laws. The Congress can't make any laws without a partnership with the um, executive. And well, similar- in, in political science terms, Ken, maybe I can help you on that front. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The famous political scientist uh, Richard Neustadt once said, you know, the Constitution did nothing of the sort of separating power. In fact, it created three separate institutions that share the same power. Uh, yeah, and that's, that, what that's kind too. of his yeah. uh, more modern summation of the way it works. As I'm hearing you say yeah, that, yeah. all I can hear is I, I can just hear Neustadt. Well, here. Yeah, right, I, that's I, right. I read Neustadt's words in my head. I never actually yeah. had to hear him. So. <laughs> in, in legal academia, there's a um, scholar at Columbia Law named Peter Strauss who has uh, sort of written the same same idea. He, he would call it like we have three heads of government, which are, you know, there's the Congress is a head of government, the, the, the White House is a head of government, and the courts are a head of government. But he argues that, you know, that just means that they that 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 separates the power by making them each have to uh, work with each other, check and balance each other. But that there's nothing at all unique about what kind of power any one of them has. That the powers they actually have are interchangeable, and the the point of separation of powers is just to have checks and balances. So that that's another way I think of expressing that same idea. And that um, and I was going to you know give one other example besides the way the executive is embedded in the lawmaking process, so that it's really not just Congress that makes the laws. Um, I think similarly. Um, you know, if, if you think about, um, say, driving on the highway, and I don't know what's the speed limit out there in Oklahoma on the highways, like sixty-five or seventy-five, or you know, uh, you know a- down here, it's it depends on where you're at, but it's going to be generally be about seventy. Seventy. Okay. So, would you imagine that if you're if you're driving seventy-two, you're at, on, on the seventy road, uh, that you're at, at great risk of getting a ticket? Depends on the time of day out here. <laughs> You think they might ticket you at seventy two on a on a seventy road? Well, it depends. Honest, honest to heaven's truth, it depends on it depends on yeah. what time of the day you're doing it. Yeah, well, maybe I asked about the wrong place then, because I think in a lot of places people kind of expect that there's a little bit of a rule of thumb that you you can probably go about five five miles an hour over before you're at any real jeopardy of getting a, a ticket. And just indulge me and pretend that that's what it well, is. Well, I'm just saying here, here in Oklahoma, places. you know, yeah, if you're, you're doing it on right the, say the Turnpike and it's two a.m. I think you can get to about 100 before anybody's going yeah, to follow you. Yeah. True story. There's a little race that happens. I'm not saying this. Yeah. But, uh, I've never been a part of that. My, my, listen, I drive a Toyota, Toyota Corolla. I'm not racing anybody, <laughs> just to be clear. But right. I live next to the turnpike, and, and I, yeah. I know the timing, and I know some of the people. But yeah, no, it is weird. It depends on the time. <laughs> but no, I get what you're getting at. What yeah. you're saying is I'm like, we kind of have this idea yeah. that there's kind of that plus and minus. It's, yeah. it's almost kind of the... Uh, 
oh, uh, uh, judicial, uh, the enforcement. Uh, discretion, uh, enforcement yes, discretion. Yes, yes, I couldn't think but, of that but, word. But, yeah. but what I'm saying is if, if the enforcement <laughs> discretion in certain senses is exercised in very predictable and foreseeable ways so that people can kind of bank on the fact, well, you know, on, on, a, on, a, on a 70 mile an hour highway, I can drive 72. Uh, I'm not up in the ticketing range yet because I know that if I'm only two miles an hour that, you know, even though all the officers have enforcement discretion, they'll all exercise it the same way and they won't ticket somebody who's only two miles an hour over. Um, you know, then you have to ask, you know, does that mean that the police have, have the ability to change the law, right? Because we usually say it's the legislature that makes the law. But if the legislature has codified the number uh, 70 and then the police can just sort of say, well, 70 in practice means 75, um, then again, that goes against this kind of oversimplified sort of, well, you know, the legislature makes the laws, the executive enforces the laws, because clearly they're exercising, it's inevitable that they have some enforcement discretion, and they may exercise that enforcement discretion in ways that uh, functionally allow them to change the laws. Um, you know, we see it a lot, say, with even presidential um, executive orders now that uh, say that uh, marijuana won't be enforced against under the Federal Controlled Substances Act um, in states where the use of marijuana is legal. Um, and, and so just purely by non-enforcement, you know, that's kind of a way that the executive has changed federal law in those places. It wasn't, it wasn't Congress that changed the federal law. The Congress has left the Controlled Substance Act on the books, and it makes marijuana illegal everywhere. Um, but, but in practice, it is legal in some states because the federal laws won't be enforced in those states. And so all of that, I'm just kind of starting with all that to say, before we start panicking about administrative agencies recombining these functions that the Constitution has separated, I think it's a, it's a useful corrective to remember that the Constitution never really separated them and that, you know, all the branches have to have to work together um, all the time to do anything at all. I absolutely hear that. I think what I mean by that kind of heartburn, again, to kind of go back to that Neustadian framework, is to say that while you have those overlaps, there is going to come a point where we would also suggest that if none of those institutions had a meaningful pushback against the other institutions, that eventually kind of the, the fundamental goal of the system starts to get circ uh, circumvented. So if you have an institution, an administrative uh, state institution in this case, that effectively doesn't have pushback from any other institution, because it more than just overlaps with, or in this case, has its separation of a similar power, but there's no other overarching push or compel to it, you start to get to a point where you almost undermine the system in and of itself. So I don't mean, again, I don't disagree with your, with your bit of that. I don't, I don't think there's any modern political scientist who isn't a Neustadian in that sense. Yeah. Well, look, but at the same time, even Neustadt himself, who gets criticized in part for wanting a pretty powerful executive branch, which also overlaps sometimes with administrative state issues. <laughs> but we'll yeah. save that for another show. Well, let me just say one more thing, because I, I agree that checks and balances are important, but I don't um, actually believe that administrative agencies are operating with any fewer checks and balances than any other part of the government. And, you know, just to use this, um, this, this Jarsky case as an example, you know, it might look like what you're looking at is the security 
Securities Exchange Commission makes rules. The Securities Exchange Commission enforces the rules that it makes. And, and then the uh, administrative law judges inside the Securities Exchange Commission um, decide, you know, whether those rules have been violated and how to punish somebody. And uh, um, and that um, uh, so that th- that may look like there's no checks and balances there. But I think a, 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 a more I think a more realistic way to look at that is to say, well, Congress did make a law that uh, creates the Securities Exchange Commission, gives the Securities Exchange Commission certain powers and certain responsibilities. And Congress told uh, the the Securities Exchange Commission some policy principles that that Congress wants advanced. And then then Congress said to the Securities Exchange Commission, you know, you can make the the detailed rules to to, to fill in the the details of how how these things should be enforced. And then um, then the the, the White House, the president, which is not Congress, um, they're they're actually staffing the Securities Exchange Commission. And so if the president has policies, uh, regulatory policies that he wants to advance, um, then he's he's telling his commissioners at the Securities Exchange Commission, you know, these are my these are my enforcement uh, priorities, and you've got to figure out a way to advance those within the statutes that Congress has already given you. The statutes still define your 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 authority and your responsibility, but within whatever wiggle room's there, I'm the president, and here's what I want you to do. And then everything they actually do, including the cases that they take before their own administrative law judges, all of those are reviewable in regular Article Three federal courts. So I. I don't think it's as as um, you know unmoored from checks and balances as as it might seem. Well, but I mean the slight pushback against that again, and this is where you you, know, you look at it. And so yes, maybe in general, but when you look at the actual numbers, I'm an empirical kind of guy, right? So you take a look at the, the investigative reporting done by things like the Wall Street Journal, like Cato, like others, and you see that the SEC has a nearly 100 percent win rate. When you see that they have more than one judge who has never ruled for the opposing party ever. <laughs> and, it, and you begin to have to say, well, while I understand that they wouldn't necessarily not have to have it, that seems to be evidence to me that suggests, hey, this at least to use a different, to, to uh, inaccurately use a different phrase of the court might require some strict scrutiny when you start to see that kind of evidence now. Well, I guess I would. I mean, if you tell me that an agency has an ALJ who has that kind of uh, rate of how he decides cases, I guess I would ask. Um, you know, every one of those cases could be appealed to court. What's his reversal rate in court? And if the courts aren't reversing him, then I, I it probably just means he's the 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 agency's not bringing uh, uh, cases in front of this ALJ unless they're good, strong cases. Maybe. But again, and again, given the the comparison of their win rate there, as a matter of fact, was 90 percent in-house where when appealed outside of it, it's a 69 percent over 90 to 69 percent. Well, okay, even 90. Like if you look at the federal trial courts and you look at the um, criminal cases, you know, I was saying it was 90 to 69, meaning in terms of that was the that was the over. Yeah. Okay, I, saying, I have to look at that more. Continue, sorry, okay. continue. Well, I'm just saying, even, even I was taking the 90 to mean that inside the agency, the agency wins 90% of the time when it's under in front yes. of its own yeah. administrative law yes. judge. But what I was going to compare that to is you go to federal criminal court and the, the U.S. attorneys are bringing criminal cases against criminal defendants in front of regular independent Article Three federal judges, and their conviction rates are, are higher than 90%. So actually, is that when you're including uh, uh, plea bargains or is that all across the board? Well, that's when you're including plea bargains. But this is also including the the agency's version of plea bargains that would happen in front of that ALJ. 
That would be something I can look at more. Yeah, no, because I do know, I mean, again, whether, uh, let me, something worth, it's just some context for listeners. Almost all criminal cases are a, a, a plea bargained issue. Very few actually go uh, through a trial phase. Right, um, and and even of the ones that do, the prosecutors usually win. But the I thing was, is, I was trying to think. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what the, I don't know what the the non. In other words, when you throw out the. The plea bargains. I don't know what those numbers are. That, that's not a, a comeback. It, just I just don't want to say yeah, okay. It's very high. And, and I think you shouldn't throw out the plea bargains because you're actually including them uh, when you're looking at the judgments that are entered by the administrative law judges. Well, that's what I was saying. So, well, I, I'd yeah, have to yeah. look at the Wall Street Journal's data again because I did not look at that portion of it. So I can't, I honestly don't know because they talk about that in my notes here in what they call the, con- that's the contested cases. I yeah. don't know if they mean, in other words, I'm not sure if they coded that to mean only the cases that were not what you would think of as being plea bargains or not, because that language seems to suggest that's the non-plea bargain oh, case okay. rate. But I'm not sure. So I, I just want to be careful there. Uh, you know, in my notes here, that's their coding is 90% contested. win rate in contested cases. So my assumption, although I'm not positive, would be that would be your win rate not inclusive of what we would think of in criminal law as being plea bargains. But again, yeah, so, so I, I see your point. If it says contested, yeah, that might mean that that's not including the, the plea bargains. But um, the uh, yeah, I, I still think, I mean, yeah, and I don't know exactly how high the criminal conviction rates are if you don't include uh, plea bargains, but I, I think they're still very high. So I think that, that, that this idea that it would look way different if you had these proceedings um, in, in, in front of a federal judge, I mean, maybe that's true when you're talking about SEC proceedings that go in front of federal judges, but the, the, the conviction rates in in any kind of proceeding are also going to depend on you know how how what the law looks like in that area and what kind of cases the government brings and that's why I was sort of comparing it to criminal cases that are tried in regular federal court because there you know they do have a regular federal judge but because the the law is very favorable to prosecutors and because prosecutors only bring criminal cases that they generally think they're going to win you know you end up with very high conviction rates and the, the same could be true in in the SEC as well I mean, this is going to be something we're obviously going to have to talk about again as it comes up uh, when the court issues its opinion. So I'll be really curious to see kind of where it focuses and how that differs uh, from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals opinion, which it almost undoubtedly will. I know we've taken a lot of time already, but we didn't get to that Seventh Amendment issue. Can I say like three words about it? Please. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, So I I also think this idea that um, having fines uh, assessed by administrative law judges, that that somehow violates the Seventh Amendment right to a a jury trial. I I think that's pretty crazy because... um, I don't even know that there there is. I mean, the, the Constitution's text has a, the Seventh Amendment provides a right to a jury trial in civil cases, but there's really no case law that applies even in federal courts that, that says that that means anything. So in civil cases in federal court, almost all of them are settled either on summary judgment or motion to dismiss. It's very, very rare for an actual civil trial in a federal court to reach a jury. Um, so, I mean, if, if regular federal courts are allowed to dispose of most cases without juries, I'm, I'm not sure what the problem is with um, administrative agencies doing now, that. I mean, again, I'm a little bit outside of my expertise here, though, but can in those cases, when you're doing it at that level, you'd still have the possibility. Uh, so you were saying that most of them end on, rem- say that one more time, which... which uh, the two the two kinds of procedural... Motions to dismiss. Motions right. to dismiss or, or summary judgment. Yeah. But those no, would... no, nobody has the right to a jury trial in either of those situations, right? Because they're happening before you actually get before the jury. 
Yeah, yeah, because so either motion to dismiss. But I'm not, is that I'm guessing my question though is is that doesn't seem again maybe yeah. I, maybe I'm a little bit off. I'd have to get brushed back up on this, but that doesn't seem to be exactly the same thing as saying from outset from the outset that you have an a priori non ability to have a jury. In other words, so you know I indict the uh, the ham sandwich. And we recognize that there is, in fact, just a ham sandwich. And so, therefore, we have a motion to dismiss and it's gone. Uh, that didn't mean that I couldn't have had a jury trial had there been not a ham, you know, in other words, more than right, a ham right. sandwich. Whereas in this case, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, what, yeah. what the argument is effectively is, is no matter what happens, you would never get to the jury phase of it. And therefore, it's a violation. Because So that seems a little bit different. But maybe it, again, no, no it is it is different. But I, I think that the, the, it's different in terms of whether you could get to the jury or not, uh, whether anyone could get to the jury. It's right. not different in terms of whether an, an individual could. Um, in, in both situations, most individuals can't get to the jury. In, in one in one of those situations, some individuals can, and in the other situation, no individuals can. But but I think if you really believe that the Seventh Amendment meant anything, then you couldn't have summary judgment, right? I think it's not, there's no way to say, well, people have a constitutional right in a civil case to have a jury trial. If that's a constitutional right, um, then, then how is it even possible that people could file civil cases, they could go through the process of discovery, they could do their evidence. And then just, you know, before they ever get to the jury, the judge says, okay, I've seen enough. One side wins, the other side loses, we're done. And you just never get to the jury. I I just don't see how, you know, if we're going to say that the Seventh Amendment requires a jury in an administrative case, I don't know why the Seventh Amendment wouldn't require a jury in a case like that. I don't, that seems like a, a legal stretch there, Ken, because again, you're assuming that so the Seventh Amendment comes in the context of a common law framework in the United States. So, you know, even at the time of the adoption of the Seventh Amendment, I don't think anyone would have denied the ability of judges uh, to dismiss cases prior to the point of reaching the jury. And so even if we, we took your claim seriously, that, that, not seriously, excuse me, that, that, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean that That's dismissively, I, I sorry. Say it. Yeah. Uh, take it to I, its logical extent, I guess, is what you meant to say. Yeah, right? yes, yeah. 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 Uh, we take that, it doesn't then seem to suggest that that would have to be the application of it in this instance, because again, what you would be suggesting is the possibility for that to exist if you make it to that point in a trial. Um, so I hear what you're saying. And again, I, I don't know exactly where I fall, but it, it, it seems too quick to remove it for the the mere reason that the, that you would have the ability to end a case before it arrives at a Seventh Amendment issue. Well, hey, let, me, let, let, me, the let me use a different example then. I'll use the example of small claims court, right? You can, you can have civil suits in small claims court and there's no possibility of having a jury. And, and, and nobody says the whole small claims court is unconstitutional. Isn't small claims court under the amount prescribed by the Seventh Amendment, though? I mean, isn't that part no, of the No, no, this amount prescribed by the Seventh Amendment is only $20. Oh, that's true. They've changed it without changing the Seventh Amendment. Yeah, yeah. nobody's amended the Seventh Amendment. Because initially, the idea was small claims would not have risen to the $20 amount, but today it is still $20. That, okay, yeah. okay, I yeah. see what you I see. In other words, we're we're acting de facto as if we have kind of uh, 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 accounted for inflation, but we haven't actually changed the text. And that therefore, I mean, in Congress, 
it, Congress has uh, passed some statutes that don't apply. You know, the, the small claims courts are mostly state and local, but in in, in federal court, um, if if the basis to get into federal court is that the two citizens live in different states from each other, Congress has said you can't go in there unless there's seventy five thousand dollars at issue. But ordinary small claims courts usually don't have those kind of thresholds, and they never provide juries. And uh, and there's other kinds of federal courts that don't provide juries either, like the tax court doesn't provide a jury, and the, the bankruptcy court doesn't provide a jury and the, the court of international trade doesn't provide a jury. It's not just agencies. There's lots of judicial proceedings that don't uh, provide a jury. And there's, you know, the, 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 um, I, I think that there, there's no case I'm aware of where the Supreme court has ever looked at some setup like that and said, well, this violates the Seventh Amendment because there's no there's no jury here. So if they do that in the case of this administrative agency, it's going to be overlooking the fact that there's many kinds of judicial proceedings that don't offer juries, and they've never said that that violates the Seventh Amendment. Okay, now there there I at least I un- better understand that argument than can I appreciate you uh, uh, walking through it that way because that the first one I just thought ah but. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was probably not the best one, but I think small claims court or these other specialized courts um, yeah. might be a better way to. And we should have pointed out again that the point there on the uh, the Seventh Amendment, twenty dollars. I, I think about yeah. that, but I forget to. You know, not everybody, not everybody's reading the, the Constitution every day, unless, of course, you're <laughs> heading to Patreon.com/slash/politics guys. I'm just saying, but. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ken, I think we better probably end the show <laughs> kind of right there on, on that note with the court and our thing. Obviously, there's more things going on this week, but you can't cover everything every week. So I do want to say a few things, though. So if you've made it to this point of the show, we've mentioned this several times. What makes this show possible is supporters. And we would love for you to become a supporter of The Politics Guys and to join me and Ken. I mean, we keep talking about what are we doing on the bonus shows? Well, the bonus show is our ability to kind of break away from from the news stories of the week and do something a little bit different. And so Ken and I, what we've been doing now for over a year is we've been going through the Constitution of the United States and we've actually just gotten in to the first 10 amendments. We're going to go through all the amendments of the Constitution. And it has been a whole lot of fun. And one of the other cool things is, is unlike kind of the, the timeline of a show, you know, what we're talking about on our weekend show, it has a shelf life, right? We're talking about particular things. And you might be kind of interested in, well, what do we do kind of in those broader natures? Well, the, the, these, these shows, they last forever. You can actually get as soon as you become a supporter, you're not just getting our next show. You don't have, just have to now join us as we're talking about the amendments. You can go back. You can, you know, we were talking about Article 1 with Santos. You can go all the way back. You can listen to all of our shows sequentially on the Constitution. All of that content becomes available to you as soon as you become a supporter. So again, you're not just making the show possible. You get that uh, supporter-exclusive midweek show. You get other things as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have things like the di- our Discord group, ad-free versions of the show, and more. So again, I've said all of that, and I've already mentioned it in the show. Maybe you're decided, now is the time. I want to be a supporter of the politics, guys. Well, to do that, we just need you to head over to patreon.com slash politics, guys. And what's really cool, you can take a look at all the different levels of support there, decide what level you want to have and the benefits you want to have. Again, all kinds of really cool benefits. Now, Maybe you don't want to do it through Patreon. You don't want to head to patreon.com slash politics, guys. There's other ways you can do that. And you can support the show through things like the Venmo app where we're at politics, guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. I know a lot of our listeners love to do it that way. 
If you want to see all of that, that's all in the support links in the show notes, as well as you can head to our website at politicsguys.com support. So again, get that midweek show, become a supporter of the Politics Guys this holiday season and, you know, feel good and get cool stuff. Head to patreon.com politicsguys or head to politicsguys.com support. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're just not in a position to financially support the podcast right now, that is not a problem. I get it. Just shoot an email to mail at politicsguys.com and we can get you all set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, or review us on the podcast app of your choice. And you can share those episodes on social media as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, anything else you'd like, you can always email us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and X, and you'll find, again, all of that information in the show notes. Just head on down there. I like to give, as always, a great shout out to the executive producers of The Politics Guys. And they are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us.